This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. But Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. There he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. <laughs> Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Command Cave inside the Melvin Law Studio. Melvin Law, the only law partner at the University of Florida. So, um, we are having a good day here. It's uh, sunny. It's a little chilly at night. Uh, everything looks okay in the piney woods of North Central Florida and God's country. So we hope you're enjoying a good time wherever you are. If you are farther north, you may still be having a little cold weather. We've had a little nippy night, but uh, it's been okay. Well, 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 start out today, of course, with Coach Hall's locker room. And uh, it's... it's <laughs> What else is there to talk about ex- except uh, the final four? And the final four has been done and over and completed and in the books, if you will, for the women. And it's been really an interesting time for the women's final four. As I reported earlier, it's the first time they've gotten to use the March Madness brand. And it featured very hard competition at top level athletic ability of these women. And of course, coming out on top was the school and university had been number one in the nation all along. We played here at the University of Florida fairly closely, surprisingly, with at that time an interim coach, Kelly Ray Finley, who is now a permanent coach. So I want to go into just a little bit of a background on how South Carolina got to be the perennial power among women's basketball. We have a connection with South Carolina, of course. It's our own Steve Spurrier who went there and established a pretty good reputation for himself there as a coach who could also produce a winner in football at South Carolina, which up until that time had not had the kind of success it wanted. So it went looking for somebody who could maybe make it happen, and they got Coach Spurrier. In the shadows of that has been all this time, and even Coach Spurrier now, if you talk to him, will take his hat off to Don Staley because he thinks – as I've been told from people who've been talking to him about it, that she's just outstanding. Of course, she is. And that she's done a remarkable job at putting South Carolina on the map, not only in the SEC as the top women's power in female basketball, women's basketball, but in the nation. And when she won last night over Coach Gino of uh, University of Connecticut, who was a perennial powerhouse for years, almost went uncontested whenever he his teams got ready to go to the Final Four. Really the be-all and end-all who was up until last night probably the stalwart banner barrier for women's basketball. But now really the guard has changed and he acknowledges it, Coach Gino acknowledges it, that Don Staley is uh, the one who is going to be carrying the torch for women's basketball here for a while. And everybody else is going to be trying to hang on and compete and catch her. I want to go into a little bit of a background of her. She is... Uh, she, she began coaching at Temple University, and she was very uh, – she coached the USA basketball team 
then she transitioned from a player to a coach. And after that, uh, she began to realize that really coaching was her calling. It's a sort of a passion and a teaching commitment, but it's also a commitment to elevate in the eyes of sports people, the quality and uh, standard of women's basketball. So as a young player, uh, she grew up in uh, Philadelphia. And at those times, she had two goals, and that was to become a national champion and Olympic gold medalist. So CNN has done a big program on her, and much of what I'm talking about is out there in the public domain now that is well known about her. But now she's really become center stage front. She has six Olympic gold medals, three as a player and three as a coach. And she coached the South Carolina National Championship team in 2017. She's a two-time NCAA Player of the Year and a six-time WNBA All-Star. She also won the Naismith Coach of the Year Award. She beat out LSU's Kim Mulkey, whom our coach here beat that team when that team came here to the University of Florida this season. And Kim Mulkey was the first one to point out that Kelly Ray Finley was indeed the goods and University of Florida needed to hire her. So uh, there is also some good women coaches, Stonford's Tara uh, Dan Devere and North Carolina State's Wes Moore. But this is the lady who has taken over the center stage front, as I say now, for the ladies basketball. She really has had always only one game, uh, one goal, and that is to be a national champion, both as a player and as a coach, and also as making the South Carolina team a national champion. Something even Steve wasn't able to accomplish as South Carolina as a football coach, if my memory served me right. So this is a lady who uh, really brought the uh, need for the whole slogan of March Madness to be also applied to the women's because they have drawn such enormous power and they'll continue to do so. Staley will be the one who will drive that bus and she will make sure uh, it's a comment everybody else has to chase. So in, after winning the 2017 National Championship, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, which is my birthplace. I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, in Fort Jackson. Uh, Columbia, uh, the mayor of Carol, uh, uh, named a, a street after her, uh, Colonial Life Arena, Dawn Staley Way. And in January 2021, the university made a statue of A.O. Wilson for her accomplishments with that championship team. So they've got some tradition building there. Uh, nine months later, October 2021, University of South Carolina Board of Trustees approved a seven-year, $22.4 million contract extension for this coach. She's the highest paid black coach in women's basketball and one of the highest paid in the country. So you're looking at the gold standard when you uh, take a look at Coach Daly and her teams. She feels that South Carolina has contributed enormously to growing the game and growing the women's sport as a whole. I, for one, plan to be right there Next season, Lord willing, and the Creeks don't rise to watch the Lady Gator basketball team try to chase this superstar coach and woman, and hopefully it will draw us up and our crowds up as well. Uh, she makes sure women feel good about being women. Uh, she makes them feel strong and, and, and needed and, and important and absolutely essential. Uh, she's got a whole calling that's more than just basketball, and that is to make women's basketball a place where uh, the magnitude of it cannot be overlooked by some of the other competitive sports that we play in our society. 
She invests a lot of time in her players personally. She uh, helps them from as early a relationship as she can with them to as long as she can. She wants them to get everything for themselves they can get out of the sport. She introduces her entire team to agents all over the country so they can get their brands in order, so they can get the wealth she says they deserve. She's passionate about the sport, and she wants little girls to grow up to be like her. It's a really big story that I think that we saw last night, because I, for one, um, watched it and uh, was obviously um, watching from uh, really history being made in many, many ways. Uh, she co-founded in 2013 Inner Soul. It's a nonprofit that provides sneakers to homeless children and children in need who have demonstrated excellence in a classroom in Columbia. So you cannot just get Coach Staley's attention as an athlete. You've got to also get it as a student. Wow. Is that real? Am I really seeing that properly here? The, um, the, she wants the, the game to generate uh, local change, too, in the community. So she sends her players out into the community to be participants in the community and to be role models in the community for the younger uh, people, particularly young black women who want to know how they can become successful and what lies for them in their lives if they do put everything they've got into their passion. She is herself uh, tries to recruit high impact players who imitate her story. And so um, she looks for the people, even in the hometown in Philadelphia, she'll everywhere she can. She has a Dawn Staley Foundation, which is a nonprofit meant to support at-risk teenagers with after-school programs. She mentors summer basketball leagues, and she grew up in the projects in North of Philadelphia, where she learned so many lessons, tough love lessons about how uh, she didn't want any sympathy. She didn't want, she didn't want to carry a chip on her shoulder. Uh, she didn't want to be regarded as somebody who had a grudge. She just wanted to get an opportunity to go out and compete. And if she can compete, then she wanted to do it the right way and set the standards for not only uh, herself and the people she played with, but the people she would eventually recruit and coach. She was only one, taught one thing, and that was the way to be successful. There was nothing else to talk about except being successful. There was no self-pity. There was no saying, whoa, me, look at where we started. Let's just take where we started and go from there. So it really is a, an odds beater story. And it's one that I wanted to feature on uh, Coach Hogg's locker room because um, this is the kind of quality um, that uh, we need to emulate in all parts of our lives with our coaches and our players. Because even today, the guys I coached when I, and this would go back 60 years practically, still call me coach. And uh, it, it's kind of eerie. Uh, recently at a, a funeral of a very, very good friend of mine, a player that I had the opportunity to help coach in high school 60 years ago when he passed. I looked around the room or two or 300 people in that room at his funeral, and I was the only one there who had been his coach in high school. And that, that occupied a very special relationship. And it's one which carry, you carry with you all the time. You also carry it as a professor, which I was also. I still have that rapport. But as you are a coach, you, you monitor. Listen, it's so much more invasive of your privacy, if you will. I monitor what you eat. I monitor who you hang out with. I monitor what, how you exercise. I monitor uh, what you read, what you believe, uh, I, I, the whole bit. I'm totally involved as a coach in your life. Um, not that necessarily involved in your uh, life as a, as, as a professor or a teacher. You come into the classroom. Uh, we have a moment together there, 40, 50, 60 minutes, and you're gone. But I tell you, 
when you're my player, uh, I'm in the weight room with you. I'm, I'm in the study hall with you. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing relationship. So uh, hopefully we can get those kind of coaches here at the University of Florida. Hopefully Kelly Ray uh, Finley will turn out that way. Uh, one of the sad stories I think that the University of Florida is suffering from, and I'm just going to put it out there right now, and I may enlarge upon this theme a little later, is you saw that this lady here goes back, four, I think I mentioned it, 14 years as South Carolina's coach. 14 years of stability and continuity in a program with a coach uh, and building it slowly and thoroughly from a, found, a sound foundation. Uh, the house is not built on sand. So, uh, and then, then that, that tradition is honored and passed on. We don't, I'm going to be very frank with you right now, we don't have that at the University of Florida. We have basically segmented or fractured off or compartmentalized uh, relationships and coaches, and it's not passed along. It's attempted, it's attempted, attempted by making Steve Spurrier the ambassador. But I can tell you that until the players come back and connect with the players, and that is passed along to the future players, you don't have a, any kind of continuity in the program. And you need to have that if you're going to really, money won't buy it. And now that you've got this transfer portal and you've got name image likeness, which is all these things are an unknown in terms of whether that contributes to building the coaching brand and the school brand or whether it's just all about the player building his or her brand. And the fear is that this thing will siphon off loyalty to a team, loyalty to a, a, a program, a loyalty to a coach, unless perhaps they can do what this coach uh, Staley does and that is shepherd that also uh, these girls through that kind of relationship, finding them agents, finding them a, a, a proper compensation for their, their ability. If that's the case, then that will in itself help facilitate the positive effects of the transfer portal because everybody in the country want to come and be associated with her because who's a female basketball player because she's going to take care of you from the, from the day you get there until long after you leave. And then you're going to come back and reciprocate with that program, that coach, and that school with the future players that come. That's the way probably ideally it would work. I think that's the way Coach Gino has had it at Connecticut for a long time. But now basketball has come to this southern world, part of the world, which is heretofore known primarily only as a football, football school league. That's primarily what the SEC was known for, back to Paul Bear Bryant. But now it is much more uh, diversified. Truly, this is a place where the words diversity and inclusion actually apply. It is so in the Southeast Conference now because we have uh, a standing jewel here to illustrate a national prominence in a female sport that heretofore has not gotten perhaps the luster it needs. So I thought last night was a, a historic moment. It was a, a fun time. And I really thought that from the very beginning, Connecticut, when I watched them in the first four or five moments, because I had also the opportunity to be a basketball coach, played basketball, lettered in basketball. So I saw right away that uh, Connecticut was not going to be able to get down, as they call it, in the paint. Uh, they were not going to be able to rebound and control down low because of, of the female Shaquille they got down there, the, the girl who is 6'5 and has been um, you know, a prominent a figure in women's basketball the last three years and arguably the best female basketball player in the country. She came here. She's very, very outstanding, nice person. 
and 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 really a very very quality player. So it, let's just face it: Connecticut couldn't penetrate, get down low, were forced to take their shots from outside under a lot of pressure. Had a very low percentage point of scoring, and only had basically one score. Uh, they were limited by uh, uh, one of their better players having broken her wrist in a game before that. So it's uh, it's a tough world out there, and uh, it's it's all been changed over now to the power. Um, we'll see if Coach Daly can keep it going, but she's certainly got the right uh, principles and things in mind here to make it work. Um, I want to go into now uh, the follow-up on a story that we have been covering for quite a while, and that is uh, the the uh, uh, registration of the inmates in the jail. Let me just uh, have, a, have, have a sip here. This story has got a, gotten another wrinkle to it. And um, uh, Ray says, set out the national anthem. Uh, Ray, she did not set out the national anthem last night. Ray Stern is talking about how, yes, she has been, been in that argument, but she didn't last night. I was with you, Ray. I was one of the first things I was looking for. Would the South Carolina race, uh, you know, it's, it's a tight rope they walk here when they go out and get these the girls out of the, out of, but I think that's probably over now. I don't think you can pull that. She didn't pull it last night. Ray Stern talking about how heretofore there had been places where Staley's team had not come out till after the national anthem was over. Um, by golly, they were there lined up and, and standing at attention last night. That's one of the very first things I checked out. And I got to tell you, Ray, that had they not been there, I would not have been giving her one second of time on the show. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that perhaps now being the national champion, you will set a national example. And I certainly think it's a fair game in the future. Should she not, uh, then we got to call her in and call her down and have a word with her. And it will, that, that's, that's the way it's going to have to work. If you're the national champion, you set the national example for the nation that allows you to set the, to be the national champion. And that's the way I would discuss it. And that's how I would do it if I were her athletic director. So we'll see. I will help do all my part to keep it honest. Uh, we now have a follow-up story that happened over the weekend here about the jailhouse uh, registrations, and they're called jailhouse registrations. And I want to take my hat off to Carolina uh, Avento for being such a tremendously astute writer, young lady writer uh, from the University of Florida, Alexandra Lugo. Uh, but the, uh, the person with whom we've communicated the most is Carolina uh, uh, Livento. And this lady uh, is on the ball. She's a young writer. She's uh, um, writing this story and has been following more intensely and closely than anyone else uh, in the media. Uh, we don't have any, any, any astuteness at all from the Gainesville Sun set. Uh, Channel 20 doesn't have any time or any inclination to cover these things. And certainly, um, you know, the Watcher Chronicles not covered it. So we're covering it. And uh, the outfit known as, uh, I believe, let me get the name right, is a fresh Take Florida, which is a publication service, media service out of the University of Florida Journalism School. But what Carolina uh, uh, Lavento has discovered, along with Alexandra Lugo, is uh, the real nitty gritty of what's been going on here that uh, has been glossed over by the political astuteness, if you will, of one Dan Smith who doesn't know, have a clue what he's talking about because he doesn't know all the documents we know. But basically what we have here I just gave basically the liberal rag point of view. Uh, we have jailhouse registrations 
And we have, um, of course, some things coming forth that are not in the article I'm going to mention right now. Uh, Lake County, Sumter County, charges are coming there. And uh, what we have here that's becoming very clear, let me just read the statute to you. Because if you remember, I reported of that one Derry Lloyd from the state attorney here office, Brian Kramer. Um, they, they, they said, well, we're not going to press any charges on anybody at works of the supervisor elections office who participated in this. And a couple of you have, have uh, made this point here on Facebook chat. As I'm watching, you've made this point that, uh, let me just get back to that screen, that what happens, what, what can you do with, uh, with uh, the uh, uh, behavior of the supervisor elections office. And I said, you know, why would the state attorney drop or refuse to charge um, the behavior, particularly of TJP Shea, whom we know went in there and registered these people. And then these people themselves have testified that he cajoled them into doing it. So we have looked up the federal crime jurisdiction because what this is really, when you think about it, and this is the only way I can think uh, to make this the only way I can make sense of what uh, Kramer's office has done with Derry Lloyd by saying we're not going to charge him. They may not be going to charge him because they're waiting on the feds to charge him. Now, we know I'm not going to go deeply into this. I'm not just going to I'm just going to say very, very superficial remarks. The feds know about this. OK, the feds know about this. Now, here are the federal criminal jurisdiction, um, the the. Uh, the, the, the feds, the FBI, the federal government has criminal jurisdiction over an election where a federal candidate's name is on the ballot. Hello, a federal candidate's name is on the ballot. The federal candidate's name is, is uh, Donald Trump. So we have a national election. This is not some local municipal election. This is a national election. This is a federal election even though the, the uh, state sets its own re election uh, rules, regulations, and so, uh, uh, et cetera, it is a federal jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction over the activities if uh, there's a ca federal candidate's name on the ballot. Um, also, in any election, federal or non-federal, when the beep involves the necessary participation of an election official acting, quote unquote, under color of law. So that seems to me to signal that the feds might be taking a look at this and because of those two, I'm, I'm going to go through the rest of them, but I'm going to go through just a couple of things that make it a federal crime allegedly to do what T.J. Pichet might have done because there's a federal candidate's name on the ballot and there is uh, an election official He's an election official acting under color of law, which means to say the umbrella, the shadow of the law is on him as he goes in the job. The shadow of the law goes with him. Now, uh, this is uh, 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 involves computer systems. It involves any connection with the election. And that that is uh, uh, certainly criteria by which he was operating. So the, the person, including an election official, in any election for federal office, if he, here's a, listen to these words. 
knowingly and willfully intimidates, threatens, or coerces, or attempts to imitate, threaten, or coerce, or solicit for re registration to vote, or attempts to register or to vote. This is what he did. And this is what the inmates are saying. They would never have registered to vote if he hasn't talked them into it. One of them says, my God, I didn't think I could do this, but he told me I could. That's in the storyline that has been written by Fresh Take Florida by the young University of Florida writers who've actually gone in and interviewed these guys. Um, so if you're aiding or urging, here's the other part. If you urge or aid any person to register to vote uh, or attempt to register to vote, if you urge them, they said, and then I'm, I, 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 I bet you everything in, in, in the local banks here that these inmates didn't know the, this law, did not know this federal law when they were urged by their own testimony now, as reported in Fresh Take Florida, they were urged by T.J. Pichet to what? Register. And this is, let me read it, urging or aiding any person to register to vote or to attempt to register or vote. There you go. There you go. So I've got to tell you, my friends, that this this story, the, the, the state attorney, I'm going to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not easy to do. The state attorney might have kicked this can over because the state attorney has always been trying to get it out of his house. I can testify to that. He didn't want to touch it. He threw it over to the sheriff. And, uh, you know, Derry Lloyd took it to the sheriff without a lot of enthusiasm. And. Then the sheriff said, well, I'm kicking this over to FDLE and FDLE did it. And FDLE brings back uh, 10 charges and it drags on and drags on. And we have good testimony that the state attorney said, well, it's not a priority for me. And then Breitbart steps in and the press steps in. And this is where the pressure began. We speculate. We don't know. Encouraged, encouraged the state attorney to go ahead and do his duty. Uh, this is all speculation, of course, but this, the, all the little dominoes seem to line up. So now, if that's the case, then it's lined up one more domino has fallen, and the state attorney has kicked this over to the feds because this is a federal election, because federal candidates were on it. So um, the, whenever the, 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 the state attorney said that all current and former uh, employees at the Elantra County Supervisor Elections Office have been cleared of wrongdoing, that is a state attorney saying that. It's not the FBI. It's not the feds. So there may be another shoe to drop here. I almost called today's show the plot thickens. Uh, you would think it should. You would think that this is a clear example. I don't know if there's any clear example in the land that's documented, that is provable, that is a violation, and I'm going to give due process its opportunity, under the statute to be a possible federal crime and a federal crime in this case would be far more significant than a state crime. So if it's a federal crime and we're going to keep an eye on this to see if the feds are now taking a look at it since maybe the state attorney has signaled to the feds, maybe, Hey, you guys take it. And if that's the case, uh, then uh, we'll see, where this goes, but it's really being covered very well by Carolina Lavento and Alexandra Lugo. Um, the uh, is called uh, 
uh, you know, this last one they wrote is 10th person charged with voter babe investigation over jailhouse registrations. So uh, this is this. And, it, and listen, these guys, let me just tell you, tell you something right now. These guys are not choir boys. OK, they they they're surprised that anybody would even come looking for them because um, uh, three out of three out of th only three of the 10 are out now. They're out on the street right now. But seven of them are in the big house or in the big job up at Rayford, University of Rayford. They're up there at the big house. So they, 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 they got to be dumbfounded. And anybody would come into the jug and come over there and say, come on, guys, you can register. It's OK. It's fine. These guys were hardcore felons already. And it wasn't just that they owed money. I mean, they had done things you could not pay back. And I'm not going to get into it. but We have all the records that we looked at them. And these are not, as I say, choir boys. So the question becomes, uh, at what point do we as a culture this is for you, the listeners and students. At what point do we just turn a blind eye uh, to the irresponsibility of a government official and say, oh, well, oh, well, we messed up. But it doesn't, it's not statistically significant. Oh, well, go tell that to Al Gore. Go tell that to Gillum. Uh, go tell that to the guy who lost out to that Nikki Freed fried frazzle. Um, go tell that locally to, to the Growth Management Act, which would have passed had we got the a lot of mayor office, but so here we are um, looking at something that maybe is about to develop into another uh, big thing because five of these 10 were already convicted. And you're telling me that I, as an election official, can go in there and turn a blind eye to the fact that five of the 10 I signed up were already convicted and had no way of paying back any kind of uh, and then we have the memo. By the way, I messed up. It was nine days. I had the dates a little bit wrong. I thought it was a week before between uh, Kim Barton saying don't do it and T.J. Pichet doing it. It was nine days. So nine days went by between the email that we got, pried out of her cold, dead hands, if you will, that um, indicate that she sent out an email saying, listen, don't go signing up felons. And nine days later, T.J. Pichet goes and signs up these people. And by God, there's more than 10, by the way. There's only 10 that's been, that have been actually the hammers dropped on, but we don't know why those 10. We don't have the FDLE investigation. Getting that is also, we've got to yank it out of their cold, dead hands. So it's, um, it's, um, it's um, you know, it's an interesting, interesting tale we've got here. Just to, before we go on the break, I want to go back and just give you a couple of notes. Coach Gino make 2.9 million a year. Don Staley makes 2.7 million a year, and Kim, Kim Mulkey over at LSU makes 2.6 million a year. It's kind of amazing um, that that um, those coaches and we don't. I think we managed to pay uh, Coach Kelly Ray Finley about 600,000 a year. So listen, as a coach, I'm getting 600,000 a year. I've got to go out and compete with Don Staley, who's getting 2.6, 2.7 million a year, and I got to I got to I got to light up uh, you as a player. A marquee with the possibilities of, of coming here instead of going with her. That ain't going to happen. Uh, she's going to continue. Staley's going to continue to get the creme de creme, and we're going to have to take up uh, the rest of the fruit. So uh, we'll do the best we can. That is the story right now on um, the jailhouse registrations. Possibly, possibly, we're going to go over to the feds, and they'll pick up this situation. It certainly appears, it certainly appears 
that if you read the federal statute, it appears that it's applicable. We'll be right back in a moment with a couple of surprises for you after, after the uh, uh, break. So stay tuned to the Ward Scott Files. Uh, be right back. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, R&R Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. If your brains were lard, you couldn't grease a small frying pan. <laughs> to call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people. Octone, octone. The papers are not in order. Step out of the line and report to the inspection station. You're going to search your belongings. Much now. At Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Fuck. Help me. Help. Help. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Command Center in the Mellon Law Studio in the piney woods of North Central Florida. We just had a um, good reportage, I think, brought you up to date on jailhouse registration. I don't think the story's over yet. I think it might just be warming up as jet engines. So we'll keep you involved. It certainly seems as if there are some contradictions and some strange uh, turns and twists in the narrative that need to be ironed out so that we can get a clear understanding of what is happening or what is not going to happen or whether the word cover-up applies, as some of you have used over here on the Facebook chat. Uh, that's just the way it's working out right now. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to keep you up on date on that. But we're going to play a little ditty for you. And I don't know if we're going to get it downloaded or not. It's the song that the Van Zant guys out, uh, have created for DeSantis. I think you've probably heard it out on the web. We won't try to play it. But it speaks to something that is very, very much going on in this country right now that I want to take a little time and talk about that I titled today's show after, and that's Blue versus Red. There's been a lot of talk about this nation being 50-50 split. I think most people seem to think that's where we are. I don't know if it's shifted at all because of the behavior of the left, because I don't think the left is reasonable. I think, and I talked to a very much politically involved person yesterday who doesn't believe it's going to make any difference whatsoever uh, in the fall elections. The truth will make any difference in the fall elections that the progressive left will simply continue to be uh, head in the sands and will continue to vote and continue to have a cause. And that is all these things that uh, make, you know, shady to believe, begin with climate change and, you know, LTBG and uh, all this wokeness and stuff. Those people are 
not logical and not reasonable. And the thinking is, in spite of what's going on, uh, they'll turn out and vote. And in spite of the optimism that the Republicans have about being able to take back Congress and eventually even the White House, don't count on it because you're dealing with people who are not only rabid in their advocacy, but also less than honest about how they go about getting it and ensuring it. Let's, let's leave it that way. I didn't have to beat myself there. But there is a phenomenon that is going on that's undeniable. And even an outfit like uh, New York Times, it's as liberal as it is, has had to write about it and look at it. Sean Huber, Jim Cowan, they're from California. You can't get any more uh, progressive left writers than these two probably coming out of California, which is, I think, I've always wished, hoped, thought, maybe because of the earthquakes there that California would just eventually fracture off from the continental shelf and float out to the Pacific Ocean like Hawaii. Hawaii is just absolutely not, you know, the Japanese own it and run it. And they might as well, they might have well won World War II because it's, it's all a Japanese dominated island um, by the people I know who live there who tell me with great frustration that, that, that that's who runs this place. It, it, you know, the world is zany. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't, we think things work in a straight line and make some sort of progressive sense. And by progressive, I mean sequential. Um, but no, it doesn't. It doesn't work like that. Apparently, it just doubles back on itself, runs over itself, stumbles over itself, repeats the same mistakes. It's, it's just, and that's why the Greeks did not have a linear view of time. You understand only Western society has a linear view of time. By that, we mean it starts with ADBC and then we count sequentially out to what would be called in Christian religion, doomsday or the second coming. And that would be 1999, 2000, 2001. So we, so we write history that way. What we do is we don't look back since back is, uh, past is dead and gone, unless of course you're uh, somebody with a grudge or a chip, then you wanna rewrite it to your version. Um, but the Greeks never thought of it that way. For them, Ecclesiastes is the place where you most see it in the Bible. Sun hastens the place from which it came. Sun also rises, Hemingway's novel title. So uh, the Greeks have a circular view of time. Time does not go in a progression, layer sequential, out, it, it repeats itself and had a, a whole different way of viewing the passing of time. And as a, as a consequence, the emphasis was on learning and studying the past because the past uh, mistakes of the present would be repeated, uh, not discarded, from the past. And so therefore, you tried to study the past and learn from it and not repeat it in the present. And what happened, of course, is uh, human nature gets involved and the frailty of the human being uh, screws even that up. So that doesn't necessarily work either. So we have one of the most radical things that those of those, uh, those uh, and one of the most fascinating courses I took in, in university was, I'll tell you about two of them, one was, of course, a religion course. I wanted to take it. I wanted to understand religion, not as uh, uh, you know, somebody trying to convince me to be baptized or uh, change the Catholic Church or change. I just want to know the stories, the stories. And so I studied this, the storytellers and the professors who taught it that way. By the way, someone asked me whatever happened to Byron, who was our number one uh, scholar in my high school class, who I got to cut up one time and misbehave. Uh, did he become a neurosurgeon or something like that? No, he became a professor of, div of divinity at Yale. He, he taught exactly what I'm talking about. I never studied with him, of course, there, 
but I studied with our own version of this at the University of Florida. And uh, it was always very interesting to me how this worked. And one of the most fascinating moments, it's very unusual for a society to completely change its way of tracking time from a BC, which we had to go back and invent, uh, to an AD. Uh, in other words, to change it over from a way of keeping time in a rep repetitious way to changing it to a linear way. And then what's even more remarkable is that takes place and gets built in hardwired, if you will, into our brains in about 100 years, which is considered to be, when you think about it, one of the most remarkable things that human beings have ever done in so-called, certainly in Western civilization. Now, if you go down to primitive tribal places in Africa, uh, you don't, you're not going to get anything like that because they don't have any recorded way of measuring anything. No, the, no, See, the reason Africa gets defeated, the reason Native Americans defeated, they were oral cultures. And a written culture will always defeat an oral culture, always. The oral culture never succeeds. The reason the Catholics were able to, to, to defeat the shamans in Canada, for which the Pope is just now all issuing some sort of um, apology um, is because the Catholics wrote everything down. And by golly, um, everything is rote memory and rote practice and repetition and, and chanting and all that business. Well, that, that will absolutely dominate an oral tradition so that the Indian shamans, who were the kinds of keepers of the spirit in the Native American world, had no chance of competing with the Catholics in Canada, for example. And there's an excellent movie, excellent movie on this called The Black Robe. And the black is called The Black Robe because the Indian shamans never, ever took negotiate any understanding about the way in which uh, the, the nature was related to uh, with the Catholics. And one of the very serious questions I asked my divinity teachers was, listen, you have dominion over the earth. Uh, and everything, you know, Noah brings everybody to the ark, and and and, and we we're. I said, science shows that's not true. Why in the world would the religious writers not recognize? Of course, we're trying to set up that hierarchy. There's God, then there's the kings, then there's man, and that's how the uh, sequence works in the Constitution and I mean the Declaration. Uh, those rights come down, you see, from God. Uh, and what happens is basically what happens is the political leaders pervert God's conversation with humans. And that's why the declaration starts out uh, that all uh, these rights come from God. Well, this is uh, impossible to convey to the Indian shamans and they cannot set, they have no common ground with the Catholics. The same thing happened with the, the Native Americans here. Uh, they could never, ever, ever understand the way in which Western religion allowed men to treat nature. I didn't understand this. You know, Buffalo Bill kills, uh, slaughters, uh, all these buffalo from the back, from, from a flatbed B&O railroad car, and thus the carcass is right on the prairie. The Indians absolutely couldn't understand that. You only took that which you needed. Uh, uh, it's kind of like the Liberty Mutual ad. You only pay for what you need. You only took that which you need and you let you didn't slaughter for the spirit, sheer sport of it. Uh, but that so I asked the divinity guys, 
and they said the word dominion, and this is the best explanation I've heard, the word dominion got misinterpreted. Dominion meant responsibility for nature, not superiority in nature. Well, there you are. That's where we are. And now the Southerners understood this, and the Southerners fought industrialization because they felt that that relationship that the machine created with man and the earth perverted man's relationship with the earth. So these environmental freaks right now should be going back and championing the Southern cause, but that's all been perverted by this distraction called the race issue. So I just wanted to give you a little history here on how to clear your mind of garbage. Now, what's happening here in this country is we have right now a kind of standoff between those who have sorted themselves into opposing partisan camps and the states are becoming either more red or more blue. And in the red states where we have red legislations, we're passing um, bills that the blue states are propagandizing or, 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 or at, don't, say, don't say gay. Well, that's, that's not even in the bill. What's talking, what the blue, what the red are talking about is it's unnatural to talk to a person uh, child at, at a certain age prematurely before that child is ready for that uh, conversation uh, in the state-owned institution of learning. So this has uh, been a really a, a kind of a, an indication of the standoff, if you will. Some people even call it a civil war. Uh, it's manifesting itself in abortion bills. It's manifesting itself in LGBTQWXYZ protections. It's, it's manifesting itself in defund the cops. And you can take a magic marker and you can go down the country and you can write a blue or, or you can write a red and you can see what's going on. It, it, can, it, 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 it applies to conceal, carrying concealed weapons. It, it, it applies to uh, election um, um, the legislation that we've been discussing, and um, it is a clearly uh, got some irony. One of the ironies is that, just take our state of Florida, 1,000 people a day moving to the state of Florida. My God, go out here in this little area we're in and take a look at this, this accommodation for growth. The problem is, and I talked to somebody the other day who really is in a, point, in a place to know it, uh, without revealing anything specific, uh, this fellow works for one of the uh, uh, communication systems. You know, I'm just going to disguise it a little bit. You know, like you have DirecTV, you have uh, these sort of things. So these guys go uh, into a lot of communities and talk to a lot of people. And what they are talking, what they were talking about, which was so interesting to yours truly, is they are setting up these communication systems, you know, DirecTV, Dish Network, um, you know, Windstream, whatever it is. Um, for people moving to Florida. And they say what they're seeing is all these people come from blue states. And what they're afraid of, though, is that, and they talk to these people about it, these people moving to the blue states, guess what, don't like DeSantis. And so they are, these guys who talk to me or just our, our working people say it concerns them because they are DeSantis favorites. They like Florida. They like the way DeSantis is protecting Florida and the Republican legislature. But the very people they're setting up homes for, if you will, are coming here to get away from blue states, but bringing blue with them. Now, this is going to be an interesting kind of uh, thing to watch for those guys who 
think of themselves as pollsters, which I think is like snake oil. Um, you uh, you have a, a clear opportunity to to track something that is going on. Um, the state of the state that Governor Newsom gave uh, just last month, he, according to the Times article, took more than a half dozen swipes at Florida and Texas, and it compared California's expanded sick leave and family leave and Medicaid coverage during the pandemic with the higher COVID-19 death rates in the two Republican-led states and alluded to these states as states where they're banning books and where you can sue your history teacher for teaching history. This is the type of crap that comes out of the governor's mouth of the, of the state of California. Huh? Let me just take a sip here on this. It's really what you gotta be on, uh, 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 kind of wary of. I mean, what, what, is, what is happening here? Well, we have got, uh, we've got a, good, a good example here of, of a clear opportunity to write a B in blue ink and are in red ink. So um, the, there are conservatives in California, but they're squashed. They, they, don't, they don't get through to this governor. And um, so also what the blue states are watching is uh, Newsom has said, well, come on back, Disney. If you don't like it in Florida, come back to California. Personally, I wish they would. I wish we could just lift up the whole Disney fiasco, Fantasyland. And of course, I'm, I also want California to break off, as I said, and float out to sea. So if we could transport our version of Disney down here out to California, then break California off and let it go out, we'd be all home free, wouldn't we? Um, so that, that is one of the things that, and they're after, of course, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, um, who had a slogan, don't California my Texas. We were going to play this, 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 this DeSantis uh, Van Zant deal. I don't think we can do it. Um, and apparently, can't let the no, production can't download it. But get a take a look at it. It's funny. And it's a song that uh, Van Zant's have made uh, for Governor DeSantis. Um, maybe we'll work on it and try to get it in tomorrow. I don't know if we can get it in tomorrow or not. We'll probably do that. Um, so you've got a bunch of criterion. Criteria is a plural of criterion, it's a singular. You got a bunch of criteria that you can use with your magic marker to die. You close your eyes and do it. Uh, just take a look at where the, they, uh, that where they view voting uh, revision as voting restriction. And if they view it as voting restriction, then that's gonna make it a blue. If they, if they view it as voting revision, then that's gonna make it an R. And if they give LGBTQ, uh, you know, these extreme protections, that's gonna be a blue. And if they try to put that in its proper place, well, that's going to be an R. Um, there are, of course, implications for this. We just talked about this. Um, the uh, movement of people about may have the opposite effect as these blue states uh, uh, protest these uh, so-called restrictions of the R's. Uh, those in the blue actually move to the R's, and then hopefully they don't turn the R's more blue. So it's um, it, it's really it's really an interesting story, and I wanted to run it by you because. It's it's uh, I think a way I hadn't looked at it before, but it is uh, a, a definitely something to be aware of. Now, much of this DeSantis is pushed back on the federal government, and um, we have been taking a look, for example, at the influence of so-called influence of COVID on the the nation, and we know that Zucker Buck Berg Buck took Zucker Bucks and applied them to Democrat counties uh, all over the nation. Uh, under the guise of making up for the impact on voting 
uh, by COVID. And that's the way that whole thing worked, uh, basically. Uh, Zuckerberg from the Center of uh, Civic and uh, Life, uh, you know, along with the, the wife, built, I don't know, millions, millions, I've forgotten the number, 3.5, whatever. We got 700,000 here in this little podunk county of Alachua. Imagine that, $700,000 of private money from a liberal outfit to influence and enhance and, and, and increase liberal voting. Uh, all it wouldn't be called that. I mean, that's the, way, that's the way it worked. Now, the problem is that we're COVID broke. And this is according to people who've been taking a look at this. The reality of this, Kim Strassel on the Potomac Watch says that Washington has always been dysfunctional. And everybody knows that. But uh, it's really become dysfunctional now when it's devoted itself to the topic of so-called topic of COVID poverty. Uh, this has been the whole hue and cry of the Democrats. And, you know, in a way, it's anecdotal. You can tell whether you're in the presence of a Democrat or Republican. The Democrat will have a mask on, the Republican won't. I mean, it's kind of oversimplified, but check it out. <coughs> so even to this day, even to this day. So how did we get COVID broke? Uh, under the cry of emergency, the uh, Washington spent $6.6 .6 trillion in 2020 and $6.8 trillion in 2021. And in both years, 50% of that spending, get this now, according to these calculations from the Wall Street Journal, uh, went for COVID, quote unquote COVID. Um, only a year ago, the Democrats waived a sixth COVID relief bill of $1.9 trillion called the American Rescue Plan, which was enough money to buy every COVID vaccine, ventilator, and hospital chain on the planet. Um, this turned out to be probably a windfall for hospitals who started, of course, calling cases COVID when they probably weren't. And by calling them COVID when they probably weren't, they qualified for more federal books. Uh, what a hustle. What a hustle. Don't think it didn't occur. I've heard too many times now from good guys who keep track of this stuff that it did. So uh, uh, now we've got a, a COVID uh, copolitic kind of culture. Uh, where did all the money go to? This is even perhaps more interesting everywhere, but not always to COVID. The rescue plan handed $350 billion in re quote unquote relief money uh, to the states and the Associated Press recently described its uses. Here's what it actually went for, $140 million went to a high-end hotel in Broward County, Florida. Colorado Springs, Colorado is dumping $6.6 .6 million of COVID relief money into golf course irrigation systems. And Iowa County is using $2 million to purchase a privately owned ski area. Huh? Massachusetts is putting $5 million uh, to cover debts of the Edward M. Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. I mean, come on, come on. New York is sitting on funds that were supposed to go to homeowner assistance and small business recovery. Ah, but now that there's quote unquote no pandemic uh, hysteria, what do you do with the money? So one of the things the government will need to do and watch it is creeping back into the narrative is create more COVID hysteria. And if you create more COVID hysteria, hysteria then you might be able to, dump some more money into the American Rescue Plan Act, and all these undersigned dollars will begin to float around again at the discretion of whoever wants to disperse them. 
Now, that's just the legal waste that Strassel says we have. Uh, that's it's a legal waste of beep and abuse. So we have a, such a thing as called COVID beep. Well, COVID beep goes hand in hand with a, a voter beep. And there you are. So uh, this is the type of situation that you really need to kind of be on guard for. And it's very difficult to track. Um, the Labor Department estimates that more than 163 billion of 872 billion in COVID unemployment dollars were probably improperly paid with a significant portion attributable to me. So uh, that's, quite, that's quite a story, is it not? That's a 19% improper payment rate and it's more than seven times the 22.5 billion the White House recently insisted it needed for additional COVID dollars. Um, hey, there you go. There you go. How was COVID used? How was it important? How did it uh, uh, put its finger on the scale? Well, that's just one. And I think all these things will eventually come out, but it'll all be too late to come out. I was going to play. I don't know if we got time to do it. Do we have time to play the boxer's little thing? Okay. I'm going to conclude with this. Got a couple minutes here. This is the scene in the bar when uh, our, our boxer Floyd Mayweather uh, basically encountered the same thing that Will Smith did. The way we out here, well, there you go. That's where Will Smith got it, huh? That's why he, he clocked old Chris Rock. Look at Floyd Mayweather. Control yo. I'll let it go at that. Have a great day. Warthog Command Center out.